developing your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Hi folks, how the devil are you? I hope this finds you well. I'm currently in Italy if I'm going to be honest with you. I just left Venice. Unfortunately, was not there for the Venice Film Festival, but very much felt the rumblings and the celebration of what so far seems to be a pretty successful um, festival. Adam Driver in particular and Penelope Cruz, Ferrari, are very much looking forward to seeing that a little bit later on this year. But we'll get to that when the time comes. But for us here, um, what we've been loving doing over the past couple of weeks is really celebrating those little independent films that are so important to shout about, so important to bring to your attention, because sometimes they can kind of get buried under the noise of those big studio films. Uh, Scrapper is another film that I want to draw your attention to. It came out last week in cinemas and I've watched it twice. And it's a film that has stayed with me for many reasons. I'm so impressed by what I've seen and how I felt about this film. What's really, really nice as well is that Charlotte Regan, who wrote and directed Scrapper, uh, is hopefully going to appear on the podcast in the coming weeks. Uh, I reached out to her on social media just saying congratulations, the film's great. So we've been chatting about trying to get her on to the podcast, which I very much hope we can achieve. But in the meantime, do go and check out Scrapper if you haven't already. And for the second week in a row, then we're celebrating a low budget British film. Last week, writer, director Neil Masco and composer Andy Petit joined me to discuss Neil's Clockenloider. While this week, Ryan Hendrick is here to discuss his horror thriller, Mercy Falls. Now, set in the Scottish Highlands, it sees a group of friends headed off in search of a long lost cabin, only for, well, various things to strike and carnage to ensue. Mercy Falls is scored by Stephen Wright and we'll begin with his cue breaking point. Good morning, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Good, you can hear me all right, yeah? Yeah, I got you in loud and clear. Thanks for doing this. I didn't realise you were on holiday, I'm so sorry. No, no, thank you. I had the, this typical thing of just the way the, the dates, because this is booked ages ago, we get friends that live in Bournemouth and 
uh, we kind of planned it at like the start of the year. And then, yeah. of course, I got the, I got the dates of the release. <laughs> I thought, I know what's going to happen here. Everything's <laughs> going to happen this week. <laughs> <laughs> But no, it's all no, it's all good. No, but thank you for having, for having me on. This is great. Oh, um, not at all. Um, Lauren was when I saw Lauren. I think it was it. Had you finished filming by the time like November last year? Yes. Yeah. So I think that's when I was chatting to Lauren at the Scottish Baftas. We were talking about it. She was really excited about. It. She's like, "Oh, wait till you see it. Wait till you see it." <laughs> it's so good. It's oh, so thank good. You. Congratulations! I really, really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you. I'm in that sort of space. That I'm I'm waiting to find out how it's gone because <laughs> you, you know that way you just you never quite know uh, you know it's a very it's a strange one you know being married to a musician who kind of has a similar experience with the girls to when he, you know when they put a record out it's funny I was listening to an, an episode of um a, a podcast last night on my drive home with Steve Steven Soderbergh on it and he was sort of talking about that very thing of kind of you know some of his films have been brilliantly recepted some of them have not been but the fact that he has complete kind of confidence in his conviction because he's made the films that he wants to make in the way that he wants to make them. And it's like, oh, I kind of like that. Yeah. Totally, yeah. You realise it doesn't, uh, at a certain point, it doesn't matter. I mean, someone told me this this, um, this week because uh, my last film was um, was a Christmas film and, uh, you know, the critics absolutely went for it, you know, um, but it's been on... It's been on BBC One Christmas Day two years running, so it can't be that bad. <laughs> Listen, those critics, I spend a lot of time in, in dark rooms with those critics. Most of them are kind of grumpy, <laughs> middle-aged old men. Um, yeah, that's the kind of thing. I've, I've been always been the person who's almost like kicked back against that because I don't like being Love told it. what to think about something. It's like, let me make up my own mind. Uh, and even Same. when I've I've had the luxury of covering on mode and mail sometimes I've gone to I've gone to town actually with Robbie Collin a couple of times on things where we've where he's kind of been like unnecessarily kind of cruel about something and it's like mm. hold on a minute hold on a minute um you're you're supposed to be you know kind of given up given almost like a menu for people so they can make their own decisions from it rather than going this is what you should think about something but <laughs> I love this and I kind of really felt immersed in the whole kind of environment and stuff as well which is like not always an easy thing to do. But where did the journey for Mercy Falls start with you? Because you were involved in writing it as well, weren't you? Well, because the last film was a Christmas film, what tends to happen when you when you come out with something and it gets any kind of limelight, you tend to get a lot of people coming to you with uh, similar projects. Same thing, yeah. <laughs> and I went, okay, this is going to be a thing. So <laughs> let's make sure I don't get pigeonholed. Because I remember once going into a meeting with Creative Scotland and with uh, an emotional drama. And they said, I don't know why you want to do this because... You're the rom-com guy. It's like I've made one, <laughs> uh, so I kind of, I kind of thought, okay, let's avoid the pigeonholing here. And I thought, okay, what can we do? And it, because we're quite a young company, and we're kind of we're focused on populist genres. Yeah, it was like, well, when we when we did the previous one, we thought we can either do a Christmas film or a horror film, and we went that one way. And we thought, okay, we're going to have to go the other way. So. How how do we do that? So I, I just thought about what I was interested in, and I'm a big fan of the outdoors. Most pretty much my visual signature is a is a mountain somewhere. <laughs> uh, so, um, but we I, can I find of, you then if nobody knows where you are, Ryan. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> uh, so the kind of the cabin in the woods kind of yeah subgenre was kind of an obvious one. So I kind of looked at that and thought, okay, well, what do I want to do? And and then we kind of had the basic building blocks of, you know, the group of friends that go off and, you know, stuff goes wrong. 
Yeah. And it was like, okay, okay, how can we do this a little differently than just having a a crazy guy, big, you know, muscly guy running after him in the woods? And then just the first the first scene that popped into my head was the the sequence, uh, the sort of the siren of the lock sequence in the lagoon at night. That was the first image that popped into my head. That sort of reveal of that character as a sort of you know hinting at a sort of siren esque sort of visual. And I went, okay, that's it. And then you know when you start kind of building out from there, you, you know you start realizing you started pulling elements of like you know kind of like first blood that kind of you know these, these kind of ideas into it. Yeah, just it was, it was just a sort of vibe more than yeah. anything else, and it just kind of comes from that. And you try and kind of keep the vibe in there as you go through it because. It would be very easy to make this as a a schlocky slasher. Yeah. But that's not me. That's kind of not what I'm about. Um, I think whatever genre or storyline I tend to go after, I'm always interested in the emotional journey of that, yeah. no matter what the story is. Because I kind of feel if you can ground uh, your characters, as long as your characters react in a relatable way to something, you can kind of throw anything at them. Yeah. Well, I think that that's what's so great. I mean, Lauren, I'm a, such a big fan of Lauren Lyle. I think she's just so exciting. I'm so kind of excited about where, you know, where her career goes in terms of, because she can kind of kind of do anything really. Do you know what I mean? In terms of she's shown that with like Karen Petty, with this, with loads of other bits and bobs she's done as well. But but this character, Rona, is really interesting because like you say, she does, she's coming with this baggage. She's coming with this kind of personal, unanswered, trauma history you know with her sort of thing and that gives it so much weight sort of thing you know in terms of like her reaction to things and also kind of where she finds the strength from and the resilience I think as well it's um it's a great performance I mean the casting's really really great in it is that a fun part of it for you yeah uh, uh, eventually uh, it was it was, kind of, <laughs> it, was <laughs> it was terrifying because um uh, we wrote this script uh, for a bunch of 20 year olds and it was and then suddenly realized oh hang on a minute because, you know, that way when you're doing a low-budget film, you kind of you use what you've got, you know. So it's very much kind of reaching out uh, to uh, people you know. And then, you know, so suddenly you're like, oh, right, I can't get Kenny Boyle, I can't get Sanjeev Kohli. Oh, you, uh, um, even though, bizarrely, his agent suggested him for one of the roles. Uh, but <laughs> but, uh, but uh, so it literally had to be that traditional approach of we got a casting director involved and it was like, okay, we put the breakdowns out and then, Incredibly, I mean, we get thousands of submissions in from the agents. It was mad. I mean, I didn't see half of the the submissions that the casting director waded through before she gave them to me. And the first character that we went after was um, Rona. Yeah. And there was a brief that went out that you know of, of the kind of character, the kind of complexities of it, and obviously that we wanted someone who's kind of on the rise. Uh, and it's like this, this. I think I got a list of about a dozen names. For that for that role, and I cannot remember any any of the other ones because I just sort of honed in on Lauren. Mm. Uh, and it's like, oh, I know that name, and then I just sort of clicked on it because I'd seen it had nothing to do with it. It was just a happy coincidence. But Vigil had been on a couple months yeah. just before we we cast this. God, yeah, and she had such um, a small role in that, but it was so memorable, mm, wasn't she? Exactly, and that was the thing. I, I kind of I, I was intrigued watching it, and I I didn't I must have saved it subconsciously, but it was just like. Oh, who's that? That's interesting. And I was because I hadn't watched Outlander, um, so I was just like, but she kind of caught my attention there and then. So when sort of the name and the sort of the headshot was on this bit of paper that I got sent, it was like, aha! And it, I didn't join the dots right away, but I was just kind of drawn 
tour and she's such a smart actor as well so it was kind of from the first sort of conversation it's like okay you know we you know what's going on <laughs> uh you do not need my help here this this is good this will be interesting because then you've got someone who kind of gives a lot yeah and it's a it's a collaboration you don't they're not sat at the side of the set waiting for you to contain them by the hand and say this is how you want you to do it i mean we would sort of occasionally uh, we would sort of talk sort of slightly abstract about a scene but we'd never really technically talk yeah. about it, uh, you know, apart from, you know, where to hit the lights and make sure you're in the shot and all that. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Um, but in terms of it was, it, we'd had quite a lot of conversations in the lead up to the shoot and she was involved in, in the casting as well. Yeah. Um, so oh, that's it, interesting. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, she was just interested from the word go, just kind of was very keen to kind of just be involved and kind of, you know, learn the process and just, because there's a lot more, there's a lot more, to a leading role is a lot more to a leading role than, than just showing up and saying the words, because I'd say the lead actor is responsible for the tone on set just as much as the director is. So, and I like to have a casual, happy set. So uh, it's, 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 it's interesting, and she just just brings a lot to it. So it makes my life a lot easier because you know we're doing a very low budget film, we've got a very short amount of time, we're trying to do something incredibly ambitious with. Uh, these parameters and yeah. what you don't have uh, is time to set aside the set and work it all out you've mm -hmm. got to come ready and know what you're going to do so th that was really really helpful for me that she kind of came to work knowing the tone and kind of knew what I was going after and I've got the same kind of relationship with my DP so it makes life very very easy everybody kind of knows what Team they're work. doing that day yeah yeah exactly it's so nice because um, kind of getting the opportunity to to talk about and, and celebrate independent filmmaking as well, which you, you mentioned there about the fact that you had very little money and very little time sort of thing as well. What's the reality of kind of getting a project off the ground and, you know, and getting to that point of first day of, of, of shooting sort of thing? Mercy Falls on as, as an example, what was that journey like to get into that point of, of first day of, of filming? It was kind of surreal, and it kind of happened really fast, uh, slightly unexpectedly. We had done Lost at Christmas, and it sort of it had come out. It was doing its thing. We were still kind of working on different territories, and then the opportunity kind of arose that we could go again uh, because we're we're privately financed, and we were able to kind of do another round and raise a little bit more money mm -hmm. um, just by the luckily. But it was a sort of you do, oh, we should really try and go again as quickly as possible. But, you, but it, takes, it can take years to get something. I mean, I spent five years trying to get something off the ground and it fell apart so many times. I just had to kind of give up and just rein it in and start building up by doing smaller films. This was kind of interesting because it felt, because we'd kind of had a crack at the whip a couple of years earlier and it kind of just went from that one to this one, which doesn't happen mm. um, very rarely, uh, very, you know, at all. It just it felt kind of like riding a bike. Okay, let's figure out. Let's go again. But you kind of, but at the start of it, you're thinking, God, how did we get to that point? And then suddenly, you're there, and it's like, okay, now now you've got to actually do this. Okay, here we go. But it is like hit, hitting the reset button. Yeah. Every time you make a film, you 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 build it up, you go through the motions, you put it together, you get it out there. You've gone through all this massive journey with it, and then it's out. And then you've got to hit the reset button and start all over again from nothing, which is very daunting. But that's what I'm built to do. So yeah. there's there's uh, nothing else for it really. You just gotta just put out, you know put the pain to one side and just <laughs> yeah. go for it. <laughs> yeah. When um when I asked you about coming on, you were 
incredibly enthusiastic about talking about music, which was like music oh, to yeah. my ears. You know, in terms of like with the film, sort of like literally from the off, there's there's what's the word? It's it's um it's a big score. It's brilliant and it really works. You know, you've got that beautiful kind of strings intro builds that kind of and immediately sort of kind of gives you a atmospheric sort of nod as to where we could be going genre wise really with it you know in terms of the it builds tension and drama kind of immediately which is brilliant so yeah I just wanted to talk to you about the kind of you know did you know what you wanted the music in the film to sound like and then we have some brilliant diegetic music as well in there as well which I loved I was singing along to that as well and it's no nay never right up your kilt. Um, so, uh, yeah, talk to me a little bit about the journey with the music, man. Well, I love score. It is one of the first things I start researching when I'm looking for a vibe and a mood and the style that I want to go in. And luckily, Stephen Wright, my composer, is as ambitious as I am and likes to make life hard for himself. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And likes a challenge and doesn't want this one to be anything like the same approach to the last film. Mm. And we did a short together and then we did the Christmas film together and they were very orchestral and very melodic. And I was interested to kind of steer away from that because they have a much darker tone. So I was researching loads of different uh, horror films and similar kind of films. and I didn't want to go down the expected route mm-hmm. of when you do a slasher. Um I mean, I was listening to things like The Descent and I ended up moving slightly into a more thriller sort of area. I liked the idea of combining orchestra with more soundscape elements. I just felt they added this sort of, it was a sort of, I liked the idea of this sort of weighty score that wasn't driven necessarily by melody all the time, which is kind of the opposite of what I tend to go for. But I mean, the, I think the only real melody in Mercy Falls is uh, Ronan's Feet which is still quite minimalistic. that just kind of making sure it didn't go too far at any point and you know, how big can it be in the kind of the orchestration of it. I mean, 
I think Steve and I are both fans of you know sort of the low strings and really using the the, the cellos and yeah in a, so in sort of strange ways as well and really sort of playing the strings really, really quite hard at points to get that real depth. Such a great instrument, the cello, isn't it? Oh yeah, I, I tried to I tried to play it in high school and I Did was you? dreadful. That's my dream. An <laughs> um, old yeah. age to play the cello. Yeah, I keep threatening to kind of try again, but my wife's like, "Well, you bought you bought a keyboard and you didn't reteach yourself to play the piano. So you're not buying a bloody cello." Uh, <laughs> it's not like you can tuck it away in a corner that kind of discreetly, no. is it? So, yeah. But it's such a it's a really interesting part of the process for me, and to work with someone who's uh, is engaged in the same areas that you are as well, and really wants to take risks. And he does it all, yeah, for the most part, he does it all himself. Uh, and it's just nuts what he kind of wow. pulls out of the bag. Uh, because obviously, yeah, again, it's a low budget, uh, because it's a low budget film, you know, we're not, we're not throwing money at orchestra. So it's all digital. Wow. And it's interesting learning that's a slightly different process than writing the, the music on a piano, writing it down and then giving it to an, an orchestrator and off they go. It's so much, uh, because it's like, it's not, it's this one guy who writes it all and then orchestrates it himself. Mm. And it's it's interesting understanding the sort of learning the technology of it and how it's not just about you know selecting the right instrument and playing the notes in and moving it around. It's like once he's done that, then he goes in and he basically alters every single note to make it sound like someone's actually playing it, so it doesn't just feel like yeah. a piece of software. And that's cool because you'll turn up one day and there'll be like there'll be a line of something, and it's like. Mm, okay, how's that going to work? That's uh, and then it kind of fills you with dread. It's like come back in three days, and then you, you come back, and then suddenly it's this huge atmospheric sequence that does not resemble the the basic uh, motif that he played in in front of you the other day. But yeah, it's a, it's remarkable what you can do, and you'd love to have way more time to do it. But it's, but again, I don't think it made much difference with Stephen because Stephen's got this really bad habit at the eleventh <laughs> hour of of pulling an absolute gem. <laughs> it was backside. I mean, I mean uh, Lauren's character has essentially two themes. Uh, one is sort of this sort of the innocent theme that we play quite early on, and then it sort of develops into this sort of more darker, mature theme uh, as she starts to descend into this more primal way of thinking. And that that second theme came out, you know, days before we had to deliver the film, and it was it was just one of those things like, well. Because it was a not not a rush, but it was a bit of a fast paced sort of process at the end, and it was like we kind of got to this moment, this particular moment, and it was like, right, that theme isn't going to cut it. It's too, it's too naive. We need something else there, and and just he thought about it for about five minutes and went right, and then just played this the second theme. It was like, where was that? Like four weeks ago, you're going to have to go back through and rework a lot of this stuff wow. to put that in. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was but it's stuff like that where just uh, the, the creativity and just once yeah. you're in the zone magic yeah. happens at random points it just it just comes out
how did you guys meet? How did you start collaborating together? A mutual friend uh, who's also a composer, Gordon Dougal, had basically kind of orchestrated putting this together. He's kind of one of these people who likes to connect people. He's a fixer. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Um, so he had this, he always had this grand plan and he, we did a couple of things together, but he doesn't tell anyone the grand plan. Just suddenly you find yourself in a meeting. Uh, and it's like, okay, you two go and do that. And it's like, okay. <laughs> I feel like we've just been set up here. But yeah, he, we kind of, he put us together because I wanted, uh, I was doing the short film called Sundown um, that we shot in Iona, mm-hmm. um, somewhere over there. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I wanted something very, I sort of subtly, uh, Stephen doesn't like to be shown temp scores. So like I said, I had to, but I had to kind of very subtly guide him in a very James Horner type way. And he was the, the perfect person for that. So it was someone who was a you know, very classically trained composer who's also very technical, who can bring to life the kind of things that you want. Because quite often when you're doing uh, sort of very low budget indie films, you find the default setting because of what's possible and what sounds good tends yeah. to be piano and acoustic guitar, uh, <laughs> which I was... You know, desperately trying to avoid going down that route because it just brings so much um, production value to the process, uh, and it just it lifts the whole thing up. Because in indie film, you're always trying to find ways just to lift up the production value of it. Because you know, when you go out there, so such a large part of the audience are going to judge you against the blockbusters. Uh, so you're trying to kind of find, but again, it's just it's part of the process. It's part of building it up and trying to be. A more honed filmmaker, so it's about every part of it, just finding ways just to enhance every time you you go out. Yeah, I mean, but, the, the um, yeah, cinematography we... is brilliant in it. I love that, and and also just how you how that landscape and the environment are are a real character as well. But when you again, you see, you almost like see the different emotional states of the landscape in the way that you've shot them as well, yeah. which I think is brilliant. And again, I'm very very lucky. Um, my deep director of photography um, is a man called John Rhodes, who is who's done it all. Uh, he's been around um, uh, in the business uh, for decades and has, you know, he's shot everything. And he's very easy to get along with. And he just he just knows what you're doing. He just knows what you want. And he's got this great thing of um, developing really sort of complex and interesting master shots that you just do not want to cut away from. Uh, it, just, it just always, you know, you, you start with your, you, you know, when you set, when you when you shoot a scene, you start with your your wide or your master shot, and you kind of you block it all out from there, and then you kind of you move in, you get all your coverage, but then he starts to kind of once you make it, you make that plan, he then starts to he doesn't tell you he's doing it initially, but he kind of works out all these different things. And it's a, it's a great shot in this film where they first arrive at the cabin mm-hmm. uh, in the third act, and there's a shot where you see sort of Lauren and uh, Jamie walk past. The, the window in the kitchen of the cabin. Yeah. And the camera just follows them around to the porch. It's all through glass. They come in and then she sort of starts to take in this emotional journey of remembering and being here as a young child. And this one shot just follows her. It's remarkable how, how it's done. Um, and that happens quite a lot in this film. Yeah. Uh, and I'm remembering another the master shot in the bar where we're talking about all the kind of the, the folk music that I totally forgot to answer your question about. <laughs> so I won't get there. <laughs> but, I didn't really ask it, to be honest. It's fine. I was just singing it at you. <laughs> well, that's just one of those, that seems to be a quirk that seems to have worked its way in live music. Um, there was a lot of live music in, um, in Lost at Christmas. And there was a, 
Do you know the Scotia Bar in Glasgow? Oh, Billy Connolly and Billy uh, yes. J. Rafty were yeah, first, yeah, first yeah. Starting. Well, back there was always these sort of these sort of impromptu jamming sessions of like a Thursday evening, uh, and it used they, to happen in often... my mum and dad's hotel in Scotland in uh, Anstruther. <laughs> On Sunday night, it would be like kind of folk night. The Miles brothers were like two local guys, brothers, mm. who used to come with their guitars and everybody would be, it would be like, yeah, Sing Song Central. Totally, yeah. And I was aware of this, but um, uh, my producer, David Newman, his dad is the brother of the lead singer in Marmalade. <laughs> Very random connections everywhere. But um, he's part of that sort of impromptu session that happens in the, in the Scotia. Uh, and I, we'd been along a couple of times over the years, and it just had this really cool vibe. Mm. I thought, I need to work this into a film somehow. And then I kind of tried to kind of set up sort of slightly more rural, um, authentic Scotland very quickly before they go off into the woods. Otherwise, it could have been anywhere. It could have been Canada, England, Ireland, whatever. Yeah. But I really wanted to hit the identity quite quickly and just have something a bit fun before it all gets very dark and dreary. So that seemed like the obvious one to throw in. And then you're kind of talking about, okay, what can they play? And you know, and David's like, you know, uh, whatever it is, it needs to be royalty free. <laughs> so back so to that just, independent uh, film, absolutely. Um, but then they start throwing ideas at you, and you, you start listening to loads of stuff, and it was kind of just a really kind of fun journey to go. Can we play? Can we use that one? Yeah, I know it's a bit of a cliche because Irish Rover isn't everything, but no, uh, Wild Rover, sorry, it's not everything. Oh, it's great. Up, it's terrible. But yeah, it's just it just had a really good vibe, and it's like okay, good, let's go. And what was the and reality you, of filming that? Was it just a case of you just let them kind of almost like just jam and play some tunes, and you filmed it and stuff, or did you were you did you have to be kind of quite you know kind of limited with it in terms of like you say you didn't have a lot of time to film, you didn't have you know what I mean. Mm. So what was the reality of that? Somewhere in between. I mean, I I, I like to I, when when we do live music and film, I like to kind of use the live record the recording that we get on the day it feels more authentic and it's it's literally because there's no there's very little time so you you give them a couple you basically do a couple of run-throughs with them on each song and that's basically to allow uh john to get the coverage uh so you'll get one in a master and then the set will do a second run if that's all gone fine and he'll just he'll just punch in and get various bits and bobs and then if we feel we need something else then we pick up a, set, a little section of it but yeah you could be there all day doing that but you getting carried again, away <laughs> exactly but you, you're there you're doing that and then behind you you've got the cast um try, trying to you know block out the, the the timing of it a little bit as well to kind of uh play the scene out and it's you're trying to kind of listen to the the, the pacing of the music and the length of it and try and understand the the length of the scene as they're as they're all playing it out because you've got to try and make it all work in the edit without having to rip it apart too much yeah which is always tricky. Yeah, it's, it's just, you know, get it get it done, move on. And ultimately, which happens quite a lot in these situations, is you kind of know going in you're going to have to compromise uh, at some point because whether it's down to the technic- how much uh, resources you have or, it's, I mean, a film like this, it's pretty much it's daylight you're fighting against. I mean, we filmed this in March. You know, we're we're we're, Three we're, hours we're filming. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> and we got pretty lucky. I mean, I think we get. I think we had one day where we get delayed so much uh, because of rain. But you can. It's a bit of a risk. Mm. I remember. I remember the first, one of the first things Lauren said to me was, "This feels like a summer film." I went, "All right, um, all right, okay. Well, I'll give you a choice. You can either be cold, wet, and miserable, 
uh, in March, or you can be nice, warm, and dry and eat the live for the midges in the summer. <laughs> what do you want to do? <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, well, I can't stand the midge. Where did you film it? We filmed most of it in and around Mugdut Country Park, um, which is just outside of Glasgow. That wasn't the original plan. The original plan was to go to the Isle of Mull. And very, in the middle of prepping the film, it just it became obvious it was going to be far too expensive. Yeah. And so we just had to sort of start reeling it back a little bit and finding it. Because we'd, we'd done this on the last two films where we would find an ideal area which had which ticked all our boxes where you could everyone would go away so you're 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 cutting out all this everyone all the traveling and to and from and all that stuff and everyone's sort of held up together as you do it and that's a really that can be really, a really fun experience um from my perspective and uh we tried to do we tried to do that on this but it was just going to be impossible so we just had to kind of find all these different locations so we were down at we were down in sort of rubber den and off down the side of Balma, what woman for a bit of it. We were round about Mug Duck. We went out to um, Loch Tay at one point mm-hmm. for the dreaded cave. Yeah. <laughs> Never film in a real cave. Never do it. Never. <laughs> Build a set. But again, <laughs> but we're, we were out there in the elements all the time. And there's, there's quite a lot of night shoots, which is quite new for me. I hadn't done a, a series of night shoots before. Mm. Um, so that's it. That's a different discipline. I bet. Well, that's <laughs> that's another thing, isn't it, with every project, Ryan, is that thing where you learn, it's a constant learning experience, you know what I mean, in terms of you learn things that you want to do again, that you don't want to do again, that you would do differently sort of thing. So it's kind of, it's, a, it's an amazing way to kind of, you know, kind of taking everything on board as to what you take with you on the next project. Yeah, I think you can learn every single time uh, of how you would approach it slightly differently. And every single film has got a different, set of challenges and different set of rules and it's just kind of adapting and figuring out how do you make the next one bigger and better uh, learning from your mistakes but ultimately you kind of realize that everything can be solved with a with a bit more time (laughs) if only Um, if only yeah totally all the time in the world you have perfect moving it's good it's it's getting released in cinemas yeah, that that that's kind of grown arms and legs. Um, Congratulations! Thank you. It's kind of bizarre. Um, I don't like being told no. Uh, <laughs> I hear um, you. What tends to happen quite often uh, in indie film, uh, and it completely makes sense for the ninety nine point nine percent of movies that distributors tend to uh, only take um, television and digital rights because it's lower risk. There's not all these different um, expensive setup things you got to do and I think the, the marketing and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, streaming is a lot, and I'm not saying it's easy money, but it's kind of, that seems to be where, that's the home of indie film. And I kind of felt this film would work quite well on the big screen. So I had, and I thought, okay, I'll, I'll have a go. I'll, this can, how, how hard can it be? <laughs> uh, we'd kind of, the last film came out during COVID and I think Set rural areas of Scotland and some of England were in, I think it was tier two, where they were cinemas were allowed to be open. So we, I managed to get the last film into, I think ten independent cinemas. But I got a lot of contacts from that from the chains of different people. So I just sort of started again and said, "Oh, what do you think?" And incredibly, Cineworld have um, have been incredibly supportive of it and really pushed it. And I was expecting from the conversation we had to get a Scotland 
release. So they'd get into all the Scottish sites. That's what that was my understanding. So I was trying to build it up around that with other cinemas in Scotland. And then eventually, when I had to go and speak to the actual uh, the booker about uh, just uh, solidifying it, he kind of came back with, um, you know, a UK wide. <laughs> and, uh, it's like, okay, yeah, cool. Yeah, I can, I can pull that together. That's fine. Um, and then you've got to learn a whole new part of the business as well because they're coming at you with um, all these anagrams uh, that you have no idea what they're talking about. You're thinking, what? <laughs> it's like, okay, I'm going to sound like a right idiot here, but what is a CPL? And then they tell you, oh, it's that. Oh, right, okay, well, that makes sense. So it's like all these different things you got to figure, these boring things you got to figure out because it's just not my world at all. It's, um, and, you know, cinemas are used to dealing with big distributors that know their stuff. So yeah. Uh, it's just like kind of a, a machine. So you've got this sort of rogue element that they've allowed into it. So it's been, it's bizarre that it's grown and I'm, I'm really chuffed with it. It's kind of terrifying as well because you don't know what's going to happen now. It's like, okay, what do we do? We have to, we have to market this. And uh, you're trying to kind of merge all your plans with the distributor and, and just trying to, because again, it's it, with, a, with, a small, with a small company and a small film, it's like, okay, we can't throw the, the Hollywood marketing machine at it. Yeah. Although we did manage to throw this, if you if you're walking about Glasgow and Edinburgh, you will see uh, posters uh, of Lauren on the side of buses, um, right. which we did manage to pull together, which is kind of which is kind of cool as well. Because with with again with such a small film, you're not you don't expect to kind of get into that kind of ballpark and be allowed to play with these kind of toys. So it's great. So yeah, I'm thrilled. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> right, it's so good. And like you say, it's kind of all this taken forward at the next project as well. Do you know what that is? I don't really yet. Um, there's like a few different things kicking about because obviously I started prepping some other Christmas rom-coms and I did, we did start writing something else in this kind of vein just in case this goes well and then people go, right, have you got something else in that, in that kind of vein? And so it's, it's, it's kind, of, kind of hedging my bets a little bit. I, again, I, I need to get this out of my system and hit the reset yeah, button to properly get yeah. it fleshed out. Yeah, I'm kind of, I'll be ready to go again quite quickly because I'm quite impatient that way. Amazing. Oh, well, listen, um, it's so great to get you on and to talk about it and come back for the next one once you've hit that reset and you know what you're doing. But congratulations on this as well. And it's thank you so much for kind of taking me through, taking me through your experience with this as well. Uh, and it's just, I think it's really nice for people to hear the kind of whole journey as well. Do you know what I mean? Not just kind of coming on to talk about the music as well. But um, congratulations, Ryan. It's so brilliant to chat to you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. I'm a big fan.
From the score to Mercy Falls, that's Prey by Stephen Wright, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with Ryan Hendrick. Huge thanks to Ryan for taking the time to talk to us. Mercy Falls is in cinemas now and is a very stylish take on the slasher in the woods subgenre, which is well worth getting along to see. If you're new to Soundtracking, please head to edithbowman.com to catch up with all of our previous episodes or you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate, review and subscribe whilst you are there. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK and do have a little look at our YouTube channel for loads of extra content. I am definitely going to be getting on to uploading loads of interviews when I get back from my holobobs. Uh, but in the meantime... Get along and support those independent films, whether it's Mercy Falls, whether it's uh, Scrapper or whether it is indeed Clock and Louder. Uh, search them out, go and see them and do that little thing that you can do easily, which is supporting independent British film. Join me next week for another deep dive into the wonderful world of film and music. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. Mm-hmm.